and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andrew Degler, and today we are going to talk about equity by an idealista, about funding for Molly and Klarna, and about transatlantic data transfers. Later in the show, we will also play an interview that Robin Wouters, our editor, recorded with PJ Persson, a general partner at North Zone. Now, let me quickly bring you up to speed with a few news headlines. First up. Swedish private equity group Equity Partners has paid a whopping 1.3 billion euros for the property classifieds website Idealista. So Idealista is based in Madrid and it operates in southern Europe, namely in Spain, Italy and Portugal. So if you are not from that region, you may have not heard too much about this company. And Equity is acquiring Idealista from its previous owner called Apex, which bought it back in 2015. According to different reports, Apex paid anywhere from 150 million euros to 235 million euros back in the day. So we are talking about quite a healthy return for the company. Now, Idealista itself was founded in 2000, so it's a 20-year-old company. It currently employs some 750 people, and it also says that it has 40,000 real estate agents registered on the platform, and that some 38 million unique visitors use the website every month. Idealista was also reasonably active with acquiring smaller real estate websites around the region that it's active in, and this year it has already swallowed three of them. And speaking of active, Equity Partners actually turns out to have been the most active European private equity firm since the COVID-19 outbreak started. That is according to the Financial Times. Now, moving forward, let's discuss another big deal, and this time in the area of startup funding. Uh, Dutch payment startup Molly has landed a 90 million euros Series B round led by TCV. And this brings the company's value to over 1 billion US dollars, so... Welcome yet another tech unicorn. Molly provides payment integration solutions uh, based on its API and it focuses on small and medium businesses, mainly those located in the Netherlands, Belgium and Germany. The company says that it is on track to process over 10 billion euros in transactions this year, which would be twice as much as in 2019. Uh, from the pure startup perspective, Molly is also an interesting company, I have to say. It has been around since 2004, so it's like 16 years old, but it only raised its first funding round two years ago. Its founder, Adrian Moll, said in an interview for TechCrunch that he built the first version of backend and frontend of Molly himself while still living with his parents. Now, I quote him further, the quote begins, It's the Dutch way. Bootstrap your idea for a pretty long time. I think that's the foundation of the company. The quote ends. So let's have some more large-scale stuff from fintech companies. Reuters reports that Swedish payment firm Klarna is in talks with investors for a new 500 million US dollar round of funding. And this round, if it goes through, of course, would value Klarna at more than 10 billion US dollars as it attempts to expand its business in the United States. So that would be a new decacorn coming to the European landscape. Now, according to the sources cited by Reuters, the deal will likely be announced in the coming days. So keep your eyes peeled for more details at TechEU and elsewhere. So for the final story that I wanted to talk about, let us move to Ireland. Uh, the country has long since became the data transfer battlefield for Facebook. Back in 2013, the privacy campaigner Max Schrems first accused Facebook of moving data of its European users to the US in violation of the law. And it seems like seven years later, this fight is now coming to an end. 
So what happened last week? Ireland's Data Protection Commission, aka the DPC, has ruled that Facebook indeed should not be transferring data of its European users to its US servers, and that it has to stop doing so. Uh, the only problem is that it seems like no one, including Facebook itself or probably the DPC, understands how exactly this restriction has to be implemented. And surely Facebook quickly found a way to stall the regulators a bit longer. TechCrunch reports that the company has applied to judges in Ireland to seek a judicial review of a preliminary suspension order. Here is what the company said in a statement, I quote, a lack of safe, secure, and legal international data transfers would have damaging consequences for the European economy. We urge regulators to adopt a pragmatic and proportionate approach until a sustainable long-term solution can be reached. The quote ends. So this was Facebook for give us more time to come up with more ways to stall this regulation. It's not quite clear anyway how long it will take Facebook and the DPC to jump through this legal hoop, but it does seem that soon enough Facebook will have to face the need to demarcate the user data depending on the country of origin and then implement some restrictions on how it is moved. Facebook said that it expects further guidance from the regulators on this one, though I would say that the ruling is pretty clear as it is. Just stop storing data of Europeans on the US servers where it can be accessed by American security agencies with little to no formal grounds and due process. Anyway, the whole thing may sound boring compared to many other tech news stories these days, but it could be a very big thing when the final decision is reached. Obviously, Facebook is far from being the only US company that freely moves users' data around the globe, and now this practice may come to an end. And I feel like the consequences of this new regulation may be as broad as those of the GDPR back in the day, and we will feel the ripples of them for another few years. So let's wait and see where this rabbit hole leads us to. Now, it is time to move on with today's agenda and let me play you an interview with Per Jorgen Persson, general partner at North Zone and a VC with some 20 years of experience. Let us listen together. So hey, thank you for tuning in. This is Robin Walters from Tech.eu and I'm joined here uh, today by PJ Persson. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty close. There you go. Uh, he's, of course, a very well-known uh, hard rock musician. He's very well-known for his work in the fish import and distribution. Uh, he's a very well-known skiing instructor in the Italian Alps before. Uh, and on the side, he also does some investments. Uh, he's been an investor with uh, Nord Zone for, I think, was it? Almost uh, since 2004? Years. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Almost 20 years, um, of course, very early investors in, in companies like iZettle and Spotify and Avito and, and plenty more, which we'll talk about in a second. But maybe, PJ, you want to do sort of your own rundown of who you are and what you do uh, on the side or not. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Robin. Yeah, you know, I got into the venture industry after having uh, worked in the fish distribution industry uh, because of you know, that, that company that I took over had you know, tremendous operational challenges and that coincided with the early days of the internet and uh, uh, in order to sort of fix the operational deficiencies uh, uh, I basically uh, created a new information system based on you know the cheapest available internet uh, technology at the time and and that uh, turned out to be a very successful move and, and we ultimately managed to turn around that uh, that business and and uh, at the time then I thought obviously that I was an expert in in uh, restructuring business with the help of the internet so I decided to uh, to raise a fund and and that actually turned into uh, the first I would say the first uh, internet incubator 
in Europe uh, called Cell Ventures. Um, and uh, that gave birth to a few startups that became quite prominent up here in, in the Nordics, uh, of which um, two of them are still very much alive and kicking, Price Runner and Tradera. But uh, more importantly, the people that I got to start working with there became sort of the seeds that became also the foundational elements of the Swedish uh, tech wonder, you could call. Uh, on the 11th floor on uh, uh, Mr. Samuels in Stockholm, uh, in uh, the so-called high-tech building, uh, it was only called high-tech building because it was the only building at the time that had real uh, broadband speed. Uh, there were uh, a few individuals of prominence. Uh, Martin Lorenson, he was an employee in one of the portfolio companies. He went on to found uh, Trade Doubler and then later on obviously co-founded uh, uh, Spotify with uh, Daniel Ek. And speaking about Daniel, he was uh, retained as a part-time CTO of one of my other portfolio companies, uh, Tradera, uh, and part-time just because he was still in high school. And uh, the CEO of that particular company, Tradera, was uh, Jonas Norlander, who, after we had sold to eBay, went on to found Avito, which became uh, another uh, successful uh, startup uh, here in, in this part of the, the world. And not to forget uh, Martin Lorenzo's first employee at Trade Dollar, that was Jacob Dier, who <laughs> founded uh, iSettle. So there was a lot of incredibly talented people who uh, so congregated at that time and, and, and created the foundation of, of our success, I think, in, in this part of the world. Well, that's a really, really impressive uh, group of people back then. Uh, but of course, because you've sort of been investing for uh, over 20 years, I would say, um, you've also seen a lot of change, I'm sure, in the profession, in the venture capital business itself, but also in the European tech system as a whole. To summarize, what would be your main... The main takeaways, if you think about uh, what has changed and how it's evolved since you started investing back in the late 90s. Yeah, there's a, a tremendous amount of change on many dimensions. Uh, the first one is access to talent, I think, has fundamentally changed. Back in the 90s, uh, we're you know, turning to entrepreneurship or even getting a, a, an employment in a startup was considered as an incredibly risky move uh, from a career standpoint. And we certainly had tremendous challenges to uh, to attract people from the, the larger tech uh, companies such as Ericsson and, and the likes. So that is completely different picture right now where I think most of the top talent, uh, regardless if you go look at the Royal Institute of Technology or the Stockholm School of Economics, uh, they will have one of the startups or you know relatively um, you know, the fast growing companies in the tech space as, you know, very high up on their, their, you know, uh, wish list uh, for their next steps uh, in, in their lives. Uh, the other part was, is obviously the access to capital has been tremendously improved um, across many spectrums. Uh, first, the very early stages had notorious lack of capital back in the day. Now you can see that uh, there are lo lots of uh, uh, successful entrepreneurs that are giving back quite substantial amounts of not only capital, but also experience back to the ecosystem. And that really shows up on uh, the, the, the amount of com companies that are being funded at the very early stages. And then if you take a you know step uh, forward into the sort of value chain of, of financing, 
back in 2002, there were pretty much like 10 or 15 serious investors across uh, Europe who I think by and large uh, invested in their home markets and they seldom went across their their uh, borders. Today, uh, I think there are hundreds of uh, institutions investing all across Europe and also uh, a quite uh, quite a marked influx of capital from elsewhere, such as the US and, and Asia as well. Uh, that coupled with the fact that uh, we have an exit market now that was non-existent uh, like uh, uh, there, there, you know, you, you could hardly get uh, the attention of uh, neither a U.S. Um, uh, tech company nor uh, some sort of uh, uh, public listing in those days because the, our sector just was plainly too small. So uh, it has grown in so many dimensions, and, uh, uh, and that also means that the, the requirements, the professional uh, professionalizing of our industry has taken uh, tremendous steps forward. And, and uh, uh, you, you can see that in, in how fund, funds operate these days. Yeah, um, that's a very fair summary um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I'm wondering, you've painted sort of the investment landscape in Europe quite briefly. Uh, where does Nordstone sit in that? And what is sort of your overall strategy and investment thesis to differentiate yourself against the other investors? Yeah, so we've been at it... Um, since uh, mid '90s, and uh, started out in the Nordics, and uh, then branched out and uh, opened an office in London, and, and also subsequently in New York. So uh, we're currently investing out of our ninth fund. It's uh, half a billion dollars, and uh, our sweet spot is to invest in Series A, uh, i.e., the uh, the relatively early stage when there is some proof of uh, of. Uh, product market fit, uh, but we also do uh, quite substantial amount of seed investment uh, prior to that, and also occasional Series B and C. I think what we uh, take pride in is that having been at it for quite some time and uh, having delivered uh, consistent, good, solid, and sometimes even great returns to our LPs. Uh, we've uh, uh, we've perfected sort of our internal way of um, of interacting with entrepreneurs, and uh, uh, I think we were and are considered by many also as uh, being one of the first VC uh, funds across uh, Europe that were truly entrepreneur friendly. Uh, and uh, one of the ideas and foundational ideas of founding. Uh, Norsong way back in, in the 90s was that uh, it was incredibly important to have aligned interests with uh, the, the entrepreneurs. That that was how you created value. If you ended up on the opposite side of the table negotiating against the entrepreneur, that would uh, just create uh, friction and ultimately not uh, be valuable for anyone uh, around that table. So uh, I think we have institutionalized the idea of being uh, entrepreneur friendly. And I think obviously that our uh, entrepreneurs that we have backed over the years are the, are the best testament to that uh, since many of them we have backed more than once. And um, uh, we, we, uh, we do take pride in, in having those kinds of very long relationships. 
Yeah. yeah, I think being founder friendly, I think almost all, all VCs say they are, uh, but not not all of them actually are. And then long term, of course, it pays off tremendously. Now, I was wondering, because I asked you about the evolution of the, the European tech landscape and investment landscape, uh, what has changed for the worse or, or put differently? What are some of the challenges that we still face today that really need to be solved? Well, I think uh, if we look at it from um, like an international uh, perspective, not so much the VC landscape as such that's problematic. I think it's the the conditions for entrepreneurship uh, is still not a, a level playing field compared to, for instance, the U.S. And I'm thinking specifically about the way that you compensate your your key employees and and attract people, where uh, there are a number of you know tax regimes uh, that are. Uh, in place in particularly in, in northern and central Europe that are just not as competitive as uh, uh, a similar startup in U.S. could offer to, uh, to top talent. Uh, and that that is a, a pretty substantial like lid on growth potential. And, and it's, it's interesting to see how uh, Europe over the past uh, three or four years have actually outperformed the U.S. in terms of venture returns. Uh, and I think a part of that is a little bit of a catch-up effect that you know, we've been really shaking that uh, ball for a long time. And all, all of a sudden, these massive winners are have emerged and, and creating tremendous uh, returns for uh, uh, both venture uh, capital firms and their their investors, uh, but you know the the trick is here is not to to make this like a, a blip, but to have a have a, a continuous uh, uh, supply of talent and to to continue to develop our ecosystem, and and that is something that at least I find very hard to get our politicians to really understand, um, because they for some reason they think that uh, we're we want to somehow just lower the taxes and and you know being a liberal uh left-leaning uh, guy myself uh I, I i think quite the opposite that's the way to increase the the tax revenues if you actually get people to move from low growth to high growth and and create more value and and thereby being much more uh successful on a international scale or a global scale Quick, very specific question because you're talking about policy what needs to change. What I also hear a lot is uh, employee ownership uh, needs to change. You know, the ability to sort of grant early employee stock options. And yeah, that's that was pretty much what I, I was referring yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So that's still that's still quite problematic. Mm -hmm. Is there a way yeah. out of this? Because this needs to be solved on so many levels. You know, it's national, it's European level. Um, mm. Is there a way out of this? Well, yeah, it's um, it's certainly. Uh, um, something that we need to uh, in unison say that uh, that although it looks good right now uh, we're we're still sort of um, uh, coming to uh, uh, you know to to uh, uh, to a gunfight with uh, with just our bare fists and and because that's how tough it is in the uh, uh, on the global markets and uh, um, and I think also if you look at uh, uh, some of the other policy uh, uh, elements that the the US large platform companies like the Googles and the Facebooks of, of the world and Apple they have been allowed to define the fundamental growth vectors of other startups 
in a way that I think uh, is not healthy for the competitive environment uh, long term. Uh, I know that the European Commission has uh, uh, looked uh, deeply into that, and they're pursuing some of those uh, issues. It's it's certainly you know politically super sensitive. I understand that, uh, but I, I do believe that uh, the politicians have to really step up and look at you know what that does to you know, for instance, the fact that a company like Apple they are making more money on Spotify uh, than what you know the, uh, the the artists are making on Spotify. That's that. I don't think that is uh, is fair. Mm. Okay, yeah, ongoing story. Uh, probably mm. still uh, a yeah. lot to be done on that front. Uh, but going back to the exit market, which you've said if mm. it has improved tremendously, and it has. Uh, but if you look at the numbers and the data, it's still a lot American tech companies buying smaller European tech rivals or increasingly Asian. Uh, it is still uh, European tech companies listing in the US uh, when they uh, you know, sell their shares on stock exchanges publicly. Is there, is there really a lot of improvement on the exit market here in Europe specifically, or does that also need to, need to evolve? Yeah, so so I think the the finance community in, in I'm talking about the investment banks and uh, the larger uh, capital uh, players. Uh, it's it's fair to say that it's a still a small fraction of the capital that is uh, allocated to venture capital or to growth um, uh, capital. And if you then move into the sort of the uh, more public markets uh, perspective, uh, I think that the legacy values of the European economies is pretty much about industry and uh, and you know the the, the traditions uh, that we have uh, uh, developed over you know decades and sometimes even centuries, and uh, we've been very slow to uh, embrace. Uh, the, the tech companies and uh, there is there is a shortage of, for instance, analyst coverage, as uh, simple as that, for for tech companies. And uh, consequently, uh, when uh, uh, a company like Spotify or or uh, uh, any similar size uh, wants to uh, go public, uh, they obviously want to cho- choose the market that provides the best liquidity and the best. Um, uh, way for the investors to access and to uh, to to see what kind of quality they have, and uh, sadly that that means um, uh, the U.S. Uh, stock markets, the New York Stock Exchange or, or Nasdaq, and very few of the of the um, uh, European markets actually uh, meet that uh, uh, those objectives, um, unless you're like a industrial company or a bank or something like that then then obviously that works well okay well let's move away from the macroeconomic yeah. yeah. policy and to the mm-hmm. fun stuff yeah. um, what are you excited about these days like what are you reading about what do you follow which industry do you think is going to have you know the next uh, big mm-hmm. uh, venture returns down the line uh, yeah what's what's exciting you right now yeah so so uh, what I think is fundamentally different now from just ten years ago is that pretty much all the startups that we look at, regardless of which industry they take on, is that they have actually an inherent competitive advantage. Uh, they have typically higher access to to uh, uh, talent, they have lower cost of capital uh, and they have lower uh, operating costs and, and more flexible operating models. And, and on top of that, they typically launch new business models that their incumbents uh, 
have a very hard time uh, responding to because that would mean that they would have to basically rebuild their entire uh, flow. So, uh, so I think that uh, the starting point is that most industry, you know, if you go in after into the food industry or you go into healthcare or education. Uh, if you uh, go after, you know, the software as a service, which typically these days is not entirely just as uh, software, it's a, a business process that is packaged into a specific software solution that has a like a target customer in mind, like the HR department or the marketing manager or something like that. So uh, those kinds of of uh, changes have also been fast forwarded uh, by the COVID uh, epidemic because of, of the fact that companies need to evolve. They have they are starting to looking more closely at uh, their costs and uh, the ease of deployment. Uh, and uh, pretty much the startups addressing these sectors, they are outshining the, the legacy in pretty much all dimensions. And the only thing that's holding, most of the time holding uh, their cu- the customers back is that they wonder if these companies are, are here to stay for the whole a long run. And, and that's why sort of financing and working with uh, good VCs and stuff like that uh, can be extremely helpful for the, uh, uh, for the startups in, in uh, projecting that they are, uh, they are for, the, uh, for real and for the long run. Uh, and but you know, looking specifically also into something that is more you know down the line, I I do believe that we need to see uh, a new generation of companies uh, built on a new logic. Uh, for instance, uh, blockchain technology, and thereby creating the foundation for breaking the dominance of the the, the Facebooks and the, and the Googles of the world. Because uh, I think uh, that uh, we are sort of at the tail end of their cycle right now. And, and uh, the next uh, phase is, I, I think, is, is, doing, is bound to happen at some point. It's still very early days, but we do see quite a lot of entrepreneurial activity uh, going into the blockchain space. And uh, Everything from uh, you know how you process uh, video. Uh, it's one of our portfolio companies called LivePeer. They have even measured that they can deliver um, a video stream at like a hundredth of the cost of uh, of what, uh, for instance, uh, the Akamai of the world could uh, deliver. And that is like a that's a fundamental different play. But it will take five to ten years before that really has a, a massive uh, impact on on how things are done. Uh, but I do believe that we uh, uh, we have something new on the horizon already. Yeah, decentralization uh, definitely one of one of the things to take into account for the future. Uh, and in terms of markets, do you geographically speaking, I mean, um, you know better than anyone that small cities and small countries can also produce, uh, you know, market leading companies. Um, do you think there's a role to play here for you know parts of Eastern Europe, uh, maybe Southern Europe, to to really step up their game uh, when it comes to the European tech? Absolutely. I think the thing here is that Stockholm gave birth to a number of incredibly strong companies uh, with a tech population. I think there are like 150,000 people working in tech in Stockholm. So it's not a particularly huge ecosystem that gave so much um, and, and was so disruptive. And if you look at the, you know, how Paris uh, is growing in importance, and, and I, I couldn't even believe 
10 years ago that, uh, that Portugal would give birth to uh, several uh, unicorns. Uh, so uh, that, that's also quite, uh, quite encouraging. And, and uh, uh, the, the, what it really boils down to is that if you have this entrepreneurial mindset uh, and access to talent, then capital, like ourselves, we are hunting in places that we didn't think was even you know, worthwhile hunting just five years ago. So we're, we're, we're more likely to look uh, off the beaten track now than ever before. And uh, so does the, uh, uh, the U.S. players. Uh, so um, from a geography standpoint, which also this COVID pandemic has shown, is that you can, um, you can sort of broaden your geographical scope with very low cost. Uh, and that has happened indeed. I can't believe we went 23 minutes of recording without even mentioning COVID yet. Uh, but now that, now that you have, uh, let's, let's get it out of the way. How has the pandemic uh, sort of affected your operations as an investor, but also your portfolio companies in a nutshell? Yeah. So uh, the first six to eight weeks, uh, we were incredibly engaged in what was going on in the portfolio as you were. Uh, we, we needed to f- uh, find out what kind of risk they specifically uh, were uh, were facing and uh, how to support them in those uh, particular situations. With uh, some exceptions, I think by and large, uh, the, the, the entire COVID epidemic has fast forwarded uh, the situation for uh, digitally focused companies. So, so we have seen a much faster adoption much faster growth than planned. And also, which we uh, think is a bit surprising, is that the access to capital has still been there. Uh, That said, uh, there has been obviously a few companies that have been negatively uh, affected, and they have had a tremendous challenging time. So they have to uh, uh, really slash their costs and and, uh, adjust themselves to a new, much harsher reality. How that will play out in the end of the day? Well, God knows, but uh, our advice to our companies was that they uh, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And uh, uh, but but uh, three or four of our portfolio companies that were were looking at a, a pretty un, uncertain uh, future experienced quite the opposite. That they grew dramatically. Like Naked is one of our our uh, fast fashion uh, online uh, companies. Uh, uh, during uh, Q2, when H&M, which is probably their worst competitor, they they posted a 50% sales drop, whereas uh, Naked, they actually posted a 100% sales increase, uh, which was not what we expected, uh, quite honestly. So that was, uh, and and also the, the e-scooter company, Tier, uh, you would think that when you lock down all the cities that and you take off the, uh, the scooters off the, off the, off the streets, that that would be sort of a kiss of death for that kind of business, but pretty much immediately it turned out when when the lockdowns were were eliminated from most of the cities, people did not want to jump into uh, buses and stuff like that. So there, there was a tremendous boost of, uh, in demand. Unexpected things actually did um, uh, occur, and um, uh, and I think also the. We, we did not expect that the investment volume would stay as solid as it did. Um, so throughout this uh, this pandemic, after the first you know, two months of uh, 
quiet uh, reflection on the situation, I think the, the activity has picked up and it's as it was pre-COVID. Great to hear and very encouraging for the future. Um, we're going to conclude, but one thing that I really wanted to ask, because uh, you, you were speaking about advice. Uh, so when you work with early stage startups, um, and I'm, I'm asking this question specifically for the entrepreneurs listening in, you've worked with, with companies that have scaled tremendously, Spotify, Avito, iSettle. Uh, what are some of the things you tell entrepreneurs when you first back them, when they're still in the early stages, uh, things to look out for? What, what are some of the things they need to take into account very early, not to run into problems when they start scaling? Yeah. Yeah, so so for me, one of the key learnings has been that there is some sort of magical size around 50 to 60 employees. Uh, below that, you can basically manage your uh, operation uh, by knowing everyone. You know, you're on a first-name basis. You probably know people from before, and and then you you don't have to operate with structures and and through others so you can dominate pretty much the discussion as a as a founder uh, or co- as a team or co-founders uh, but once you grow past that you need to have thought through how you can relinquish control to really strong people and and sort of be comfortable with that because that's not a given and uh, it, you need to start sort of practicing that already when the company is like 20 30 employees on how you relinquish control because that i think is probably the common denominator for uh, the difference between our successes and failures is that when the founders have had the the uh, capability to sort of grow and move into a different role of not being sort of the the the, the, sc- the scorer but rather the trainer or you know even at at you know to 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 create and design roles for others to actually run with it and and then have a, a more of a coach and, and and thereby scale yourself so founder scalability is sort of a recurring theme here and that's what i think most of uh, uh, the entrepreneur should think about early on. Founder scalability. That's the term we're going to think about a little yeah. bit. That's a good one. Um, PJ, we're going to end uh, at this note, which is very good. I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you for um, explaining a bit more about your spare time activities and, as <laughs> your, and your insights on the European tech system. I'm sure it's been very valuable for uh, a lot of our listeners. So thank you so much for uh, tuning in and thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Robin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Please help us spread the word. I mean it. Please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about this show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at techEU. I'm going to talk to you next Monday. In the meantime, enjoy your week and take care. Bye-bye.